Welcome to Back Away Slowly, a series that walks with you through mysterious places, ominous folktales, strange creatures, and so on, before taking a deeper look at what these stories can tell us about humankind. Episodes are available in a video format on Patreon. The videos include photos, footage of my own visits to these locations, illustrations, animations, and more. Sources, social links, the shop, and more are available at backawayslowlypodcast.com. A warning that serious themes and language are used, so viewing discretion is advised. Most reporters were incredibly unhelpful at smoothing relations with locals. They wrote of the superstitious and uneducated ways of the natives, depicting them as inbred hillbillies. The news also portrayed the Collins family as stereotypes. Quote, Lee was seen as a Bible-quoting, poverty-stricken hill farmer. Homer, a rough-hewn, good-natured, loyal frontier brother. Nellie, a shy, unsophisticated virginal sister. Miss Jane, a bent, shawl-covered, tired old mother. Soon these articles went from generalized to exaggerated and downright fictional. Quote, Always the press sought to sustain maximum tension and suspense, even at the expense of the truth. On the 6th, the reporters discussed a dog belonging to Floyd named Chinny Chow or Trey. They said he would wander to the cave mouth and howl into the darkness, before lying down with his head between his paws, forcing rescuers to walk around him. The next day, the dog's name was changed to Old Shep, now claiming that he was present when Jewel Estes first found Floyd's coat. A reporter wrote, quote, There he has remained, motionless, save from an occasional twitching of a body racked with the torture of hunger and thirst. Food has been placed before him, but he has scorned it. As mentioned before, Balto's race may have encouraged reporters to focus on this story. Other writings went so far as to say that this dog had tried to get food to its master, but failed. The truth came from Homer. The dog was Floyd's dog, named Obi. Homer's book stated, quote, At the entrance of the cave, Floyd's dog Obi kept constant vigil for his master. He would hardly eat, and numerous times I had to warn people not to pet him. He would lie there on the ground for a long time, then get up and walk over to the hole. Peering inside, he seemed to be asking, Where is my master? What is keeping him so long? He would stand there for a while, looking into the hole, then turn and walk away. We could not get him to leave. He was practically starving to death as he lay there waiting for Floyd. He was a one-man dog. Later, Udolf C. Highbow, who was eight at the time of the incident, later recounted his father's experience with reporters, as his father was a photographer documenting the event. A reporter asked Highbow to take a photograph of the dog. He responded, that isn't Floyd's dog. The reporter replied, quote, doesn't matter, just take the photo. Uncomfortable with the reporter's implication, Highbow refused, though another photographer later took the picture. Despite the fact that Highbow was mistaken and that the dog was Floyd's, it was clear that the truth didn't actually matter to the reporters either way. It was just further evidence of reporters' desperation to have an interesting story at the expense of the truth. Another example was on late Thursday. Reporters claimed to see a weeping 22-year-old Alma Clark at the cave entrance. They pounced on the vague hint of more potential drama, concocting a tragic love story. Quote, She and Floyd had eloped and been married that very day. Since Alma lived eight miles from Sand Cave, some newspapers said that she walked, some that she rode a mule, and others that she was driven in a cab to her lover's rescue site. Upon arriving at the cave, she ran to the entrance, peering into the opening while calling out, Floyd, my husband, and then fainted away. The Atlanta Constitution followed this sentiment by reporting, quote, This may be why Floyd Collins wouldn't give up his fight for life when he knew the fight seemed lost. It may explain why Collins kept courage when rescuers and friends are downcast. It may reveal how Collins endured torture with a smile at times through six days in the grip of a stone in a cave, and it may show the power that kept alive that spark of faith he cherished. 
The reality was that Alma was 17, not 22. And although she interacted often with Floyd, she viewed him as an old man, more in the circles of her father than as a romantic interest. More harmful lies began to spread between people who had never been to the cave, and the crowds being kept distant and hadn't directly witnessed anything. Rumors began to churn that the entire situation was just a massive hoax, a publicity scheme to attract visitors. Floyd wasn't really trapped. In fact, he had a different entry point. Obviously, he was entering in the morning and leaving in the dark of night. The situation was not helped by Lieutenant Burden, who returned to Louisville and began to sling accusations left and right. He gave an interview to the Herald and Evening Post. The book trapped the story of Floyd Collins' notes, quote, Burden's interview was inaccurate and self-serving. He garbled his activities, placing himself at the scene earlier than he had actually arrived, and took most of the credit for the various attempts to release Floyd. He referred to the harness-pulling team as his, and said the party consisted of himself, Homer Collins, and another small man. This small man, of course, was Skeets Miller. He also took credit for the Jack attempts, again largely ignoring Miller. He suggested that Gerald was a liar and that his rescue motives were impure. He even questioned whether Gerald had actually ever reached Floyd. Burden was convinced that the local man was not telling the truth about the Cavens. Floyd Collins' life, he said, was being forfeited because of a desire for individual glory and professional jealousy over the discovery of a colossal subterranean chamber which, if developed, might exceed Mammoth Cave in dazzling beauty. The Louisville fireman concluded, quote, I think that there are two or three men down there that are guilty of nothing short of murder. I won't tell you their names because I haven't got anything to prove it with, but I guess you know who I mean. Where do I even start? It's doubtful that Burden even vaguely recognized the irony in him pointing fingers at everyone else while seizing the opportunity to be the first person interviewed by the media, therefore able to direct the narrative in his favor. If he was so integral to the rescue effort, what was he doing back in Louisville while the rescue was still underway? Also, if everyone around the rescue seems to have issues with one guy, maybe there's a reason. Maybe his own accusations of others seeking glory was far more personal than he believed. Also, there was no confirmation of a colossal subterranean chamber. Early in the rescue, Floyd had mentioned to a rescuer about discovering a new glorious chamber, but that quickly stopped. No one who has investigated Sand Cave since has found one either. I'm more inclined to think that Floyd spoke of this cavern early on to try to excuse his predicament and assuage his own embarrassment. There was a good reason he was stuck, and it would be worth the trouble of getting him out. Burden is clearly using this mystery cavern as a motive for the negligent homicide he's accusing the rescue team of. Mistrust began to spread like a disease. The Collins grew suspicious of others, and fell under suspicion themselves. Marshall questioned Lee's motives, but he also held open animosity towards Johnny Gerald. Andy Lee remained as confrontational as when he first arrived, loudly complaining about Gerald and Lee. He even went so far as to claim to reporters that the two men had teamed up to cheat Floyd out of Crystal Cave. Old Man Lee's religious and money-chasing behavior certainly didn't assist in challenging these accusations. Eventually, four main theories arose to explain the potential hoax at Mammoth Cave. 1. Floyd was part of a hoax to lure in tourists. 2. Floyd had been murdered by person or persons unknown when he entered the cave. 3. Food and water was being withheld from Floyd so that he would die. 4. Floyd was alive, but entering the cave and leaving at night. These rumors immediately began to negatively impact the rescue efforts, as volunteer numbers dropped. Tired of Burden being the only voice to the public, wanting to patch the bleeding that the hoax rumors had caused, and having been banned from the site anyway, Gerald traveled to Louisville to give his own statement. Although he stayed fairly level-headed, the public now had two opposing narratives, and unfortunately, the press's treatment of locals had already laid the groundwork for harmful public opinion. The view of the locals turned from charming and frontier-like to prejudiced, petty, and spiteful. Quote, for many of newspapers, the tragedy at Sand Cave was no longer the noble and epic struggle of man against nature, 
but the same old sordid history of human avarice and stupidity, showing the dark and shallow side of man. As for Floyd, although still worthy of public sympathy, he would not have been where he was except for his own folly and greed. Enough was enough. The side effects of hearsay had become tangible, the rumors too dangerous. On February 10th, a court of inquiry officially began to determine the truth. William Miller, who we know as Skeets, was summoned. He acknowledged that there was some competition, and a few factions, but he didn't think that it included jealousy or that the competition had been harmful. He did have to admit that information was guarded, which created a fractured approach. Geralds had been cautious of Miller and had warned him from the cave, but Miller refused to assign a sinister motive to Gerald's warnings. Burden took the stand and repeated his version of events, but notably and predictably, he greatly softened his previous statements now that he was surrounded by people who had actually been present during his rescue efforts. He condemned the locals, but kept a humorous disposition, encouraging others to laugh with him. Despite all of this infuriating behavior, he made it clear that any rumor claiming that Floyd wasn't in the cave was utterly ridiculous, as he'd seen and spoken to Floyd himself. Samuel Matlack took the stand. Remember him? The guy whose magical flamethrower would supposedly melt away the rock over Floyd's head without killing him? He opened his mouth and immediately started metaphorically swinging. He stated that Burden was obsessed with rescue merits and that Skeets was only interested in publicity. Oddly, he defended Gerald, calling him a brave man. As a side note, I'm relieved that someone directly defended Gerald, but I'm unsure how helpful it was, considering it came from a man like Matlack. Matlack aggressively said a man's life was being sacrificed for the hope of hero worship. Matlack's speech of wounded pride screeched to a halt as a man named Captain Cheney shouted out a question. Who did Matlack expect them all to believe? Quote, the men who went down and risked their lives to save a man's life? Or you, who didn't have the nerve to go down more than eight feet? More voices joined Cheney's, and Matlack was shouted out of the courtroom. But by Wednesday morning, he was back, now complaining that yesterday's interruption made him look like a coward. Despite the familiar defensiveness, Matlack did a lot of backpedaling. He sheepishly stated that he didn't intend to criticize Miller and Burden, but he was concerned that the publicity had gone to their heads, which was definitely true in Burden's case. He again claimed that his torch wouldn't have killed Floyd, and he offered for it to be examined. When it was again made clear that no one believed him and or no one cared, Matlack finally left the rescue for good. It was actually Gerald that everyone wanted to hear from the most. Was he as argumentative and belligerent as the papers claimed? Many would be disappointed. Gerald was a little jumbled at first, but after getting his bearings, he was calm, credible, and forthright. With no narrative flourishes, he said that there was no bad blood between himself, Floyd, or the Collins family in general, but that he wasn't hired by Lee and was in no other way in business with the Collinses. He was also not in charge of the rescue, but just trying his best to save his friend. Notably, Gerald didn't attack anyone, try to criticize anyone personally, or attempt to diminish their testimony. He stated bluntly that, quote, the rocks and walls in the passageway, already loosened by the seeping groundwater and the thaw, were finally brought down by ignorant amateurish activity. He admitted to arguing with Burden, saying, quote, Floyd was my friend and I didn't want Lieutenant Burden to pull him loose because I thought Floyd would be killed in the attempt. Though the audience may have been disappointed that Gerald hadn't conformed to their mental picture of him, they all perked up as old man Lee took the stand. But they would again be disappointed. Lee explained Floyd's love of caves as well as the friendship between Floyd and Gerald, which was in no way unusual or nefarious. Lee attributed his money-seeking behavior to raising funds for the rescue, as he'd been left broke by Nellie's stay at the asylum. Lee confirmed that he had not paid Gerald, that Gerald had simply told him, Lee, I'll go in and get him out. He believed that Gerald had done all he could. While Lee was on the stand, Skeets Miller received a telegram from Haddam, Kansas, reading, quote, 
Please contradict statements that I am buried alive in Sand Cave. Tell mother I am alright. Am coming home. Floyd Collins. Immediately after this, General Denhart received a telegram from Mayor F.W. Shearborn of Haddam, Kansas, writing, quote, Floyd Collins here has identified himself by scar on left umbilicus about two or three inches long caused by Gerald. Also, American flag on right arm. Weight 144 pounds and 5 feet 5 inches in height. Says mother is dead but has stepmother. He wired reporter Miller. We are holding him here until hear from you. Has no money. Lee smiled grimly at the telegram, knowing that Floyd never called his stepmother mother. He and Gerald also confirmed that Floyd had no tattoos or any scars caused by Gerald. This was one of the multiple quickly debunked, desperate money schemes that came in from all over the country. Who cared about a desperate family or a community in pain? Who had time for morals or shame when there was a prospect for money and fame? Back to the rescue site, they had released a harmless banana gas into the cave in an attempt to smell a gas leak and therefore potentially discover another entrance. When the shaft reached 40 feet, the banana gas was detected, which implied that they were getting close. But continuous rain buried this lead and required a pump to expel water from the shaft. Unfortunately, volunteer numbers fell with the inquiry started, as many didn't want to be involved with the military. Red Cross donations plummeted. Also, fueled by negative rumors, quote, telegrams of encouragement gave way to long-distant calls of outrage. Worse still, the light over the cave entrance went out, meaning that the bulb on Floyd's chest was broken or shaken loose, or it might be too late. But the rescue continued. Thursday, February 12th, Homer took the stand at the inquiry, still wearing his overalls stained with mud. He used the opportunity to plead for outsiders to be kept away for both their own safety and to prevent cave-ins. Unfounded rumors had gossiped that Homer and Gerald hadn't gone into the cave as part of the same group, which clearly meant that there was animosity between them. Homer immediately dismissed this, pointing out that sending two rescue leads in at the same time was a waste of resources. And he's right. Taking turns meant that there could be a constant cycle of rescue crews working in the cave. As well, what if there'd been a cave-in? The operation would have risked losing both of its most knowledgeable rescue leads. Homer echoed Lee and Gerald in that Gerald had not pressured Floyd into the cave. The exhausted Homer, no doubt just wishing to be back at the cave, tiredly stated that he believed Gerald had tried everything in his power to get Floyd out. Despite the inquiry being held, on Friday the 13th, a rumor spread that Floyd had already been rescued. These rumors got so bad that Washington, D.C. was flooded with so many calls that it forced business to be suspended for a day while they dealt with the gossip. On the same day, the court was moved to Sand Cave to interview minors. That morning, four diggers had heard coughing and a gasp while they were at the bottom of the shaft. Quote, Floyd was in there, they testified. And in their opinion... He was also still alive. On Saturday, February 14th, the official inquiry released their findings. 1. Numerous rescuers had lied about their part in helping Floyd, and that only Homer, Miller, Burden, and Gerald had spent a significant amount of time with Floyd. 2. They agreed that Sand Cave was a, quote, terrible place. True, but unhelpful. 3. The presence of liquor played a role in the conflicts at the site. 4. Bickering and arguments had stalled and diffused any potential success of rescue, and that the military's presence and organization had been necessary, for certainly chaos would have broken out if the soldiers hadn't been present on Carnival Sunday. 5. The shaft was now their only hope. 6. Any talk of Floyd slipping into and out of the cave at night was utterly ridiculous. By Friday, Floyd had been trapped for 13 days, his voice not being heard for over a week. Three cave-ins made it necessary for the diggers to work from the relative safety of a suspended platform. Although the situation grew more and more desperate, Carmichael was careful to keep his diggers safe, 
He was quick to relieve a man of his work as soon as Carmichael saw any signs of exhaustion. Quote, His gruffness underscored his concern and the men knew it. Their welfare was a top priority. Adequate food, clothing supplies, and medical attention were constantly maintained. As a result, the accident rate was extremely low, and the level of the health of the workers kept high. Through the storm of brewing hostility and rumors came a few unexpected sources of help. Ten members of the Western Kentucky football team arrived to help wherever they could, not caring that it only meant loading and dumping dirt. Six Vanderbilt students from Nashville came soon after, injecting some friendly competition by vowing to surpass the football team's record. Bill Takeaway of Dayton, Ohio, played harmonica at camp to keep up morale. Eddie Bray hitchhiked to the site to help as a digger. The press claimed that Bray was a champion welterweight fighter from Hot Springs, Arkansas, and this was his way to train. In truth, Bray had only been in one round of a fight as an alternate fighter. Press rumors aside, this was a 16-year-old kid who bummed rides all the way to Sand Cave to actually help. The next quote is a bit long, but after hours of reading about nasty conflict and repeatedly shattered hope, I clung to it. Quote, Such individuals were the unsung heroes of Sand Cave. As the days and nights lengthened and one frustration piled on another, they continued to work voluntarily and without pay. Most of them remained nameless, living at Sand Cave during this crisis, and then silently moving on. With grubby gray faces and bloodshot eyes, they were personified by the barrel-chested Cincinnatian whose name is not recorded, but who answered a reporter's query, why do you do it? By saying, I'm a miner. I'm going to Floyd Collins because he'd do the same for me. Through the cold night and the damp, chilly days, they passed the time between shifts, amusing themselves in simple ways. Some worked crossword puzzles. Others engaged in swapping tall tales. Still others played cards. The college boys avidly read their school newspapers, which were delivered to them to keep them up on the home news. On Friday, February 13th, a number of the crews cut out paper hearts to exchange with each other the next morning. It's just such an extraordinary example of exhausted, stressed people trying to support each other through crisis. But what astonishes me the most is that they were here for one man. A few of them saw themselves in Floyd. The rest of the country may have been abuzz with curiosity and hearsay from the comfort of their own homes, and the first set of rescuers may have been liars out for glory. But these diggers and kids were in bitter, grueling conditions for days, all for the chance to rescue one man. Though exhausted, frustrated, and powerless, even Homer acknowledged, quote, these men were exposed to considerable danger themselves, but never faltered in their efforts. When it seemed as though the shaft might collapse, the men did not stop working. The sidewalls were timbered up, and the work went on day and night without let-up. But their struggles were not yet over. Friday evening at 8.30 p.m., the timbering in the shaft collapsed and required the rest of the night to repair. Saturday evening, the shaft was 55 feet deep, but incredibly dangerous, as one side of the shaft was beginning to slump. By 9.30 p.m., the thick fog became a storm, lightning occasionally illuminating the sheets of water pouring down the hills. Roads and paths became impassable. Carmichael noticed that some of the reporters were stirring and murmuring hints of trouble, so he summoned Skeets to act as a representative. Skeets looked down into the shaft, witnessing a small slide. Pale-faced, he declared the shaft to be five times worse than in the hole. One unforeseen benefit was that the rain held off visitors. Any tenacious vendors were instead forced to set up by the strip of mud that had been the road. On Thursday, Homer had been on one of the working crews, but was replaced on Sunday. He had to be restrained from attempting to fight his way onto the suspended platform being lowered into the shaft. Marshall sat quietly to the side. Miss Jane, dressed in black with a colored scarf, sat on a railroad tie with Nellie. Lee roamed around the hillside and Red Cross tent, showing anyone and everyone the hundreds of letters that had been sent in from across the country. He repeatedly said, Look at this. They love Floyd. They love my boy. 
And then, it happened. On Monday morning, February 16th, the 12-and-a-half-foot lateral tunnel from the shaft broke through. Tools, bottles, and ropes spilled out into the mud. An excited and eager digger named Ed Brenner was lowered by fellow diggers Marshall and Al Blevins. Brenner called out to the man that they had all been so desperately fighting to save, and was met with the trickle of water and silence. Floyd was wedged in so tight that he could barely get a hand between his chest and the limestone ceiling. The light bulb still on Floyd's chest had indeed gone out. A stream of water fell onto Floyd's cheek, making a red spot. His left eye was closed. The right was slightly open, staring into the darkness. His mouth was agape, revealing a gold tooth, his face bearded and dirty. But Brenner had seen enough. Had seen... too much. They hauled Brenner out, but he only shook his head and spoke a single word. Dead. Miss Jane and Nellie reacted with no facial expression, until Nellie's resolve broke and she wept openly. Miss Jane was escorted to the Red Cross tent, where she wept and repeated over and over, I begged him not to go down there. I begged him not to go down there. Marshall Collins slumped over, tears welling in his eyes. Lee had been on the hill when he heard, and reacted the oddest of them all. He bafflingly shook hands with all who had helped, saying, quote, Thank God he's been found. It's been in the hand of God from the beginning. I can't complain of divine providence. I knew Floyd's with the angels. He got converted down in that there hole. God did it. God knows best. Homer's face was blank. He had nothing left to give. His emotions had long run dry. Even if they hadn't been, this kind of loss tends to transcend description. He stared off into the distance, as he numbly told reporters that he had lost hope the day that work on the shaft had started. Floyd's death was ruled to have been caused by exposure, exhaustion, and starvation. From the condition of the body, it was determined he had been dead for at least 24 hours. A later report would further pin down the time of death to Friday the 13th, a day the locos called, quote, Hoodoo Day. But that also meant that he had been alive, alone in the dark, and silence, for days. But now Carmichael and the Collinses wanted to retrieve the body. But how? Floyd was still stuck. Carmichael's suggestion to amputate Floyd's leg was met with a wave of grief-driven fury. Floyd had already suffered a fate worse than many can comprehend, and the family couldn't bear the thought of him being mutilated further. This discussion was paused as they brought the jurors from the inquiry into the shaft to see, once and for all, that the Floyd Collins rescue had not been a hoax. Everett Maddox used a towel to wash Floyd's face, and brushed his hair back so he could be identified. Quote, Maddox was surprised at how solidly the debris had again settled around him. The Earth simply would not give Floyd Collins up. And then... Suggestions took a gruesome turn. Superintendent Carmichael was uneasy that he had no tangible proof of the conclusion of the rescue to show to the public. Carmichael had been fairly steady and reliable throughout the entire affair, usually having decent judgment. I was horrified when I read, quote, He toyed momentarily with the possibility of cutting off a finger, a leg, or even Floyd's head and bringing it to the surface. Fortunately, a reporter suggested taking a photo, which Carmichael quickly agreed to, but what the hell was that? Anyway, photographer John W. Steger took the photo, which was then given to Lindbergh, yes, the Charles Lindbergh, and flown to Chicago. However, when the image was developed, it was blank. It turns out that the competition was so cutthroat that Lindbergh had been given a negative blank. Later, a photo was released by the Chicago Tribune of an out-of-focus Floyd with the light bulb on his chest. When Skeet saw the photo, he believed it to be a fake, as the angle at which the photo had to have been taken would have been impossible. After the photo, Carmichael cleared the area. The shaft's side supports were sinking. At 2.30 on Friday the 17th, the Collins family, 
15 choir members, and 150 workers, natives, and college youths gathered for a funeral service at the shaft entrance. Quote, the entire funeral service had taken only 55 minutes, the final hour of the 384 that had been spent trying to gain Floyd's freedom. And the shaft was sealed. Responses to the tragic end of the Floyd Collins rescue were mixed. The most common consensus was a positive one, that the crisis had brought out the best in people. Quote, Many took consolation in the fact that the tragedy proved America still had a warm heart, despite their wealth and apparent callousness. Editors agreed that the Collins affair caused Americans to realize how important and vulnerable they were individually, and how much they needed one another in the face of whatever destiny was assigned to them. A sweet sentiment, and one that I think only goes skin deep. I don't believe this attitude is generally wrong, but I can't help but remember the false telegrams addressed to a suffering family. What about all the reporters eager to sell whatever story sounded interesting, even when it was false and actively harmed the flow of resources to the rescue operation? Essentially, I find it interesting that for days, a massive wave of aggression and accusations were published. Then only after the man was dead did the editors backpedal in an attempt to pat America on the back. It was all quite sad, but they gave it a try. Suddenly, it was no longer popular to make fun of the locals or to say that Floyd was never trapped in the first place. Oh no, now it was a solemn tragedy and an example of strength in the American people. Opportunities to achieve fame hadn't run their course either. Bill Takeaway, the harmonica player, and Eddie Bray, the fighter, started vaudeville tours. Many of their acts included artifacts supposedly used in the rescue, such as hammers, spades, flashlights, and jacks. Skeets Miller had a quick opportunity to make a ton of money. He was offered $50,000, which is the equivalent of over $873,000 in 2023, to join the Chautauqua lecture circuit. But he turned it down. Many say that they didn't do it for the money, but Skeets meant it. He stayed with the Courier-Journal, who gave him $1,000, or just under $17,500 in 2023, and a testimonial dinner. Miller's time in the deep hillside of Kentucky had changed him. He had pride in his work, but it also felt like a slightly tainted victory when, in 1926, his interview with Floyd in the adjacent reporting made him one of the youngest Pulitzer Prize winners in history. Life for the heartbroken Collins family didn't settle, for their battle wasn't over. The Collins Rescue Fund had collected $3,756.91, the equivalent of about $65,600 in 2023, had been devoured by the costs of the rescue, leaving nothing left. Old Man Lee was devastated by this, frankly foreseeable, turn of events. He was seen roaming the rescue area, scavenging for pop bottles to redeem for cash. He also began using the tragedy of his own son's death for tourism by advertising Crystal Cave as Floyd Collins' Crystal Cave. Observers noted more and more frequently that Lee seemed to be losing his grip with reality. Eventually, things got so bad that Marshall, Homer, and Andy Lee petitioned to remove Lee as an administrator of Floyd's estate which was successful. I struggled to describe what Homer's life was like after the rescue operations. There are multiple sources, but I thankfully don't personally know how to describe what it's like for your sibling, your business partner, your roommate, your best friend to just be gone. And I hope I never know. Homer's own descriptions are scant, almost like that even years later, he still couldn't bear to look too closely at the most painful part of his life. What he did write was, quote, When we returned to the house at Crystal Cave, it was something less than going back home. It could never be like home again. He soon found purpose in the relentless need to get what remained of his brother out of the cave. So when a theatrical agent offered him a financial deal to make personal appearances across the country and to tell Floyd's story, 
Homer pulled himself together and agreed. He had been repulsed by the idea, but he realized that this was the only way to help his brother now. While on tour, he had to have his father's traveling show shut down. Yes, Lee was wandering around, recounting Floyd's story for money. He told everyone it was to raise money to pay off the family home's mortgage, one that Homer knew didn't exist. Life continued to mercilessly slam Homer into the ground. What I mean by that is that Homer started this traveling tour with Oscar Logsdon and Floyd's dog, Obie. In St. Louis, Missouri, Homer left Obie in the car to go up to his hotel room. When he returned, Obie was gone. Homer searched everywhere, later waiting in the same place with the car door open, hoping Obie would return, but it was not to be. Despite putting a ward in the newspaper, he never saw Obie again. Eventually, Homer managed to earn enough money to negotiate a contract with Central City miner W.H. Hunt to remove Floyd's body from Sand Cave. On April 4, 1925, Hunt and six other miners began working their way towards the Carmichael shaft. In a rare piece of luck, they found the shaft fairly undamaged. Of course, no amount of luck lasts in this story. So when they reached the bottom, they discovered that the lateral tunnel had collapsed. But they persisted, finally reaching Floyd's body. The rock that had been trapping him was weighed at 27 pounds. When the rough stone was brought out, B. Doyle claimed it, as well as Floyd's left shoe, insisting that it was part of his property. He used both as a tourist attraction at the Sand Cave ticket office. April 23, 1925. 25 cars and about 100 people witnessed Floyd being brought up on a stretcher made of two poles that were run through the sleeves of a miner's denim jacket. All that Homer says in his book is, quote, he had been down there for 82 days. Floyd was taken to an undertaker, who was actually Johnny Gerald's uncle. The conditions in Sand Cave had mostly preserved Floyd, but gruesomely, the cave crickets had been to work on his ears and face. But finally, finally, on Sunday, April 26, 1925, after three months underground, Floyd received a proper burial, witnessed by 400 people in the rain. Quote, Placed in a grave beside the Flint Ridge family homestead and near the path to Crystal, Floyd's body at last lay where his brothers wanted it to be. The spot was marked by a splendid, huge stalagmite. I wish I could say that this was where the story ended, with the family finding peace. But well, you know. In 1927, Lee Collins sold Crystal Cave to Dr. Harry B. Thomas for $10,000, the equivalent of about $175,700 in 2023. This included permission to move Floyd's body. Lee claims that this was to earn enough money to keep him out of the county home, but he did this without consulting his family or seeking legal advice. The Collins family and their neighbors believed that Dr. Thomas took advantage of Lee's senility to get a good deal. And it gets worse. In June 1927, Dr. Thomas had Floyd's casket placed in the middle of the tourist trail in Crystal Cave's main concourse. Dr. Thomas refused to admit that this was for financial gain, instead saying that it was for Floyd. Of course he'd want to be buried in the cave. The Collins brothers sued Dr. Thomas for $50,000, about $878,000 in 2023, for illegally acquiring the cave and Floyd. But after two years of fighting, Circuit Judge Porter Sims used Lee's testimony to rule the transaction to be legal. After the conclusion of the case, Homer stated that he, quote, had no desire to live in the cave region any longer. The greatest explorer was gone, and old memories haunted me. March 1929, the body of Floyd Collins is stolen. These unknown persons put his body in a sack and dragged it through the woods to the Green River Bluff a hundred yards away. They threw it off of the bluff, but it didn't land in the river. The Field Guide to North American Hauntings says that a group of unknown cave explorers got drunk in a nearby tavern and bragged of their feet. The body was eventually found, except for one of Floyd's legs, and the body was returned to its casket in Crystal Cave, the guilty parties never caught. 
three theories arose to explain the theft. One, Dr. Thomas had orchestrated the theft for publicity. Two, nearby Jealous Cave competitors had tried to steal Floyd. Three, Homer had hired the men to go retrieve his brother. Some of the information I just mentioned is from Homer's book. At this point in the life and death of Floyd Collins, descriptions written by Homer suggest a now exhausted and beaten down man. A man who put all of his hard work and the money that came from it to save what was left of his brother, only for his own father to sweep that from under him. Also, with how the body was treated by the thieves, I very much doubt that these men were hired by Homer. As well, Agrenna's painter, a stepdaughter of a Crystal Cave guide, confirmed that actually the first theory was correct. They even knew the identities of the thieves. Oscar Logston, Alvy Logston, and Troy Burnett. I hope this isn't true. Because that means that Oscar Logston, the man who participated in the rescue operations and went on a traveling tour with Floyd's brother in order to earn funds to obtain Floyd's body, accepted money to steal and further mistreat his friend. In any case, Dr. Thomas started to lock the cave at night, putting a metal coffin lid over the glass. As late as 1952, if visitors gave a guide a tip, they would be allowed to peek under the lid. A few wondered if it actually was Floyd. One guide said, quote, Sure it is. Floyd's wore out three coffins already. The tragedy would inspire multiple adaptations, the most significant of which was a drama named Rescue in May of 1957, where Homer and Skeets were flown out to advise the production crew on accuracy, reuniting after 26 years. They were both interviewed at the conclusion of the program. But now we'll discuss the fates of those involved in and around the rescue, the first being a bit of an outlier, but too bizarre not to mention. Homer and Floyd had a sister, nicknamed Annie, but we didn't mention her in this story. She'd actually moved to Moline, Illinois in 1919 and had five children. Brace yourselves, because, quote, one morning while she was fixing breakfast, her husband stabbed her three times with a butcher knife and, as she fled out the back door, chased her into the yard and emptied a gun into her. As she lay dying, her two youngest daughters clung to her skirts. Returning to the kitchen, her husband reloaded the gun and killed himself while their eight-year-old son cowered under the breakfast table. After a hell of a lot of digging, I found the actual article, published on November 17, 1934, in the Kentucky Post edition of Cincinnati. The article unfortunately only refers to her as a sister of Floyd Collins, or by her married name, the name of the man who killed her, Mrs. Carney. The article is only five sentences long, though it does include the possible motive. Quote, He is said to have been infatuated with another woman, and Mrs. Carney refused to divorce him. A 1926 article from the Kentucky Post reported that Mrs. Collins, Floyd's stepmother, had passed away, but not before requesting being buried beside Floyd at the mouth of Crystal Cave. Andy Lee Collins never returned to Illinois, instead staying in Kentucky to farm in Hart County. He would later open up the Floyd Collins Crystal Onyx Cave. He died in 1940 at the age of 45, leaving behind four children. As of the publishing of the original book, Trapped the Story of Floyd Collins, in 1978, Marshall Collins was still living in Horse Cave, Kentucky, with his wife of 60 years. He still harbored bitterness at the failed rescue, pinning most of the responsibility on Gerald. Marshall would pass away in 1981, at the age of 84. Carmichael became the state disaster chairman of the American Red Cross, dying in 1949 from eremic poisoning. General Denhart returned to Bowling Green and became involved in local politics, which actually turned out to be a dangerous move. In November 1931, Denhart was seriously wounded in a political argument. He was given only a 50% chance of survival, but he pulled through. And then things took a weird turn. In 1937, Denhart divorced his wife and became involved with a 40-year-old widow, quote, who was mysteriously shot while standing in the road beside his car, 
tried twice for her murder, the first trial ending in a hung jury, he was on his way to court for the second trial when he was gunned down by her three vengeful brothers. Burden stayed in Louisville, always claiming that Gerald and the Collins family were to blame for the failure of his plan to pull Floyd out. Frankly, all of the resources I read through gave the impression of a man who was more furious with the missed opportunity of being a hero. The fact that, by the end, he didn't care if Floyd was torn apart, or that Floyd might not survive being pulled out, is very telling. Burden would die in 1961 of a heart attack. Old Man Lee is a complicated person, in no matter what source I read. He easily dismissed Floyd's passions and dreams, but he clearly cared for his children. However, this seemed to fluctuate, as sometimes he was more concerned with drinking and swearing than about Floyd's life. Sometimes he seemed to give up on Floyd entirely, just assigning his fate to God. As I stood before Lee's grave, after reading all of these accounts of him, I get the image of a powerless, financially poor, elderly man. He had no money to contribute, and he was too old to actively participate in the rescue. All he could do was rely on his faith. It does seem like his lucidity left him, perhaps stalling the edges of the seemingly heartless decisions he would make. There are reasons, there are excuses, and there are circumstances. But not having personally known him, I can't speak to the truth of Old Man Lee or his choices. After his relatively unsuccessful tour attempts, Lee passed away in 1936. Johnny Gerald worked in car dealing and real estate, but as time passed, the reliable, honest man we saw in the story started to change. He, quote, gained a reputation for being a rough character. He stayed bitter about Floyd's death for his entire life and remained angry at his treatment by the military. He maintained that Floyd could have been saved from the Sand Cave entrance. In 1965, he was on a fishing trip to Lake Barkley and was killed in an automobile accident. In 1931, William Skeets Miller was placed in charge of early NBC's special events programming. Quote, Miller broadcast from submerged submarines, airplanes, dirigibles, and even lion's cages. He arranged for the first live transmissions from a parachute jump and was one of the first passengers to fly the Pacific in Pan American Airways' famed Clipper. Robert Ripley of Believe It or Not once designated Miller as the bravest man in radio. By 1978, Skeets was retired and living in Vermont. Though willing to talk about the Floyd Collins incident, his voice was still tinged with sadness, even decades later. It was incredibly clear that despite all of Skeets' remarkable accomplishments, the failure to save Floyd haunted him for the rest of his life. Skeets would pass away in 1983 at the age of 80. True to his word, Homer couldn't live in the cave area any longer. He moved to Louisville, married in 1929, and had a child. Nellie would also move to Louisville near Homer, and they would remain close. Homer died in 1971 of a liver ailment. Well, in 1941, the government acquired over 700 deeds and 50,696 acres. They bought the land at Depression-era prices, ejecting numerous families from their land at pennies on the dollar. The National Park locked down further exploration of other caves. Though they said it was to prevent another Floyd Collins incident, the real purpose was to draw all tourist attention to Mammoth Cave. However, in 1953, Crystal Cave was open to scientific exploration. After years of embarrassment, and looking significantly closed-minded, the Mammoth Cave National Park finally agreed to participate in cave research. In 1977, the author of Trapped, the story of Floyd Collins, got permission to quietly investigate Sand Cave with a team, as long as they resealed it afterwards. In June, armed with a sketch of the tunnels by Skeets Miller, the crew entered the cave. They reached what is called the turnaround room, which is 10 feet long and 4 feet high, with two people able to rest there comfortably, three people max. Fat, green Coca-Cola bottles lay in the dirt, the words Bowling Green molded on the bottom, 
a pipe tobacco tin with a hinge lid, strands of fine, vivid green electric wire, a one-pint whiskey bottle, which implies that maybe someone did manage to get Floyd the whiskey he asked for. They found many other artifacts, but Brucker stated, quote, You leave these artifacts where they are. As with those in the turnaround room, you do not collect anything. But the team became confused. Along with Miller's sketch, they were using a 1925 map by Roy Anderson, and it wasn't lining up. While some details matched, there were numerous significant discrepancies. They scratched their heads for a while before realizing something remarkable and potentially infuriating. The modern team had unknowingly found a way through. Surely this was a more recent development, perhaps caused by the earth shifting when the shaft was filled in, or the lateral tunnel collapsed. I wish that was true. No, they had squeezed through the crack that the 1925 rescue had only used to communicate with Floyd. The conclusion to this discovery is bitter, and I'm almost glad that Homer and Gerald are no longer alive to know it. That nine-inch crack was proof that Homer and Gerald were right. The entire Carmichael shaft was unnecessary, and they could have saved Floyd if they continued to work from the main entrance. I reread this portion of the book. How did this happen? How was this not discovered sooner? Nine inches is a hell of a tight fit, but clearly doable, and it would have put them within inches of Floyd. How did this go unknown? The book reasons that this was due to poor communications, too many assumptions, and overwhelming fear. Quote, Those early rescuers who used the regular passageway were shocked and frightened when it collapsed. They thought they faced as much as 15 feet of almost impossible digging. They also assumed that there was no bypass because Floyd himself had said there was none. They also reasoned that Homer, Gerald, and other cavers would have discovered an alternative way in if there was one. To all of them, therefore, the situation was hopeless. The first member of the modern team who entered the cave also had the unexpected advantage of not knowing that he was supposed to reach a terminal collapse, so he simply tried the gap. I wonder what it was like for the modern team, particularly for Brucker, who had studied the Floyd Collins incident in great detail. The moment of silence after the discovery. A terribly simple answer that could have changed everything. Decades too late. It's discoveries like this that make me wonder if perhaps some mysteries are best left that way. That maybe sometimes the answers have become more painful than they are helpful. I suppose that for every liberating discovery, there's a crippling conclusion for some other question out there. After all, the truth is important. But it's not always what we want. In April 1983, all of the 1925 artifacts were collected and cataloged from Sand Cave. After the National Park obtained Crystal Cave, the wife of Marshall Collins' grandson, Carol Collins, wrote to the service and demanded that they release Floyd. They disappointingly ignored her, all the way up until she sued them. Finally, a 15-man crew spent three days moving the coffin, the massive tombstone, and its base to the hearse, all of it weighing over a thousand pounds. March 24, 1989, Floyd's fifth burial is attended by 40 family members he never met, as he was laid to rest at the Mammoth Cave Baptist Church Cemetery with his immediate family. A descendant of one of Annie Collins's children remarked that the nightmare that had spanned three generations was finally over. We're finally at the end of the Floyd Collins rescue, death, and reburial. And reburial and reburial, and a few more burials. However, the echoes of his afterlife have remained. By the logic of most ghost stories, this tale had far too much pain, grief, and anger to not have lasting impacts. So now let's go to July 22nd of 1961. Quote, Two scientists conducting research inside Crystal Cave heard a ringing sound coming from the darkness of the cave. The men ran towards the sound until they came to the room known as the Grand Canyon. At the time, Floyd's coin was still there, as well as an old telephone that guides once used to communicate with ticket sellers outside the cave. Researcher Will White picked up the phone and put the receiver up to his ear. 
White could hear a background conversation, as if someone had set down the receiver while the other people in the room were talking. Then he heard someone pick up the receiver. Hello? White said. Is someone trying to call Crystal Cave? The researcher heard someone gasp, as if the person were shocked to hear someone on the line, and then the line went dead. On their way out of the cave, the researchers traced the phone wires back to the entrance and up the hill to an old ticket office. At the ticket office, they found the end of the phone line. The wires weren't connected to anything. We're going to discuss a few examples of hauntings in the caves, most of which are described almost inarguably as Floyd. But this one's not as certain. No one's identified, but this was Floyd's family's cave, and the cave he was placed in for decades. And though this incident occurred in Crystal Cave, I keep thinking of Miller, dragging the telephone line deep in the earth of Sand Cave, placing it at the cave-in. There are also stories told by guides of the emergency phone at Crystal Cave, or the phone at the historical entrance of Mammoth Cave ringing. When it's picked up, the voice of Floyd Collins can be heard singing The Ballad of Floyd Collins, also called The Death of Floyd Collins which was written by blind Atlanta evangelist Andrew B. Jenkins just after Floyd's death. In June of 1976, two cave employees were studying the groundwater flow near the crevice where Floyd was trapped. They heard the faint call, Help me. Help me. I'm trapped, Johnny. Help me. The Mammoth Cave National Park at large, and specifically in regards to encounters with Floyd's spirit, has an unusually high amount of witnesses that are scientific or park officials, so not exactly unreliable observers. Indeed, in 1987, a group of rangers witnessed a whiskey bottle be lifted out of an alcove in the wall, hover, and then drop down in front of them. Quite a few sources report whiskey bottles even being thrown at people. One could hardly avoid the recollection of the sheriff confiscating Floyd's whiskey from Homer and Oscar Logston. In the 1970s, a geologist named Greer Price was staying in the Floyd Collins home in Flint Ridge while he worked part-time for the Park Service and part-time for the Cave Research Foundation, or CRF. He was in almost complete isolation, usually in the dead of winter, having to walk for a mile from the gate to even get to the home. The Crystal Cave actually tracks right under the house. More specifically, Floyd's casket was still lying right under where Price slept. Price had heard from other rangers that had seen Collins in the cave, wearing a shirt and overalls from the 1920s, quote, and a tendency to vanish whenever someone came close to him. A member of the CRF told Price that at one point, the member had been listening to the radio in the ticket shed, when the broadcast cut out, quote, and a static-filled report came through, describing the attempts to rescue Floyd Collins. The next day, when the man asked others about the report, he was told that no such radio show had been playing on the station that night. Price wasn't superstitious, but he couldn't ignore the odd events that began to occur. The first unusual event was that the light in the nearby ticket shed would turn on by itself. Price would wake up in the middle of the night and see the glow of the light in the darkness. One night, Price heard footsteps outside. He noticed that it wasn't just his imagination, because both of his cats lifted their heads to look towards the door. Price hadn't heard a car approach, and there wasn't public access to the house. As he sat there listening, the footsteps stopped, and there was no other noise for the rest of the night. When Price investigated the next morning, he found footprints in the snow around the house, up to the door, but there were no footprints ascending or descending the steps, as well as no evidence of a car driving in. There is a fascinatingly polarizing amount of reports regarding the disposition of Floyd's ghost. So far, we've heard an angry version, where he throws bottles at the living. A few book authors believe that Collins is still furious, and rightfully so, considering his treatment. Hell, his leg may still be out there somewhere in the hills of Kentucky. But I'm not so sure. From first-hand accounts, the living Floyd is noted as friendly and personable, if a little odd. It also became common practice for rangers and scientists to say aloud, come along with me, Floyd, when in areas related to the caves, regarding him as a comforting presence. I found in many books about many different hauntings that authors almost seem to prefer or find vengeful ghosts more compelling, but I'm the opposite. 
the most intriguing incident I read implies a man more closely described by the Collins family and friends. While taking a cave class in Crystal Cave, a caver Candace Leak tripped and began to fall into a canyon, the conclusion certainly being broken bones, if not death. Quote, Suddenly a strong hand grabbed me from behind on my right upper arm. After I regained my balance, I turned and said, Thank you, Richard. Another caver. But no one was there. Richard was on the other side of the passageway. I wonder if Floyd saved me. I uttered a quick, Thank you, Floyd and left the cave. I first came across this case in one of my sources, but I now know that the information within that source was very selective and included only the most radical statements and evidence. It lingered on all of the injustices and cruelties done to Floyd's body before skipping to the hauntings. At one point I looked up at a friend and said, where the hell was his family? How could they let this happen? A few other sources implied that Floyd was just a tragic, stupid man, that the world collectively abandoned Floyd before immediately using him for their own gain. It wasn't until I read more in-depth sources that I found the complex realities. I still agree that the nation at large used Floyd, be it for entertainment, as a scapegoat, as a symbol for American pride and perseverance, as a representation as the common man, as a tourist attraction, and then either forgot him as a foolish nobody or romanticized him as a tragic hero. But what really drew me into the story further was Homer and Skeets. I won't lie, some of these books were hard reads. They did a fantastic job at capturing the desperation of a younger brother determined to rescue his elder and idol, no matter the cost. The other was a man simply doing his job and chasing a story until he could not and would not turn away from another human being. The job became just that, a job. And all that really mattered was human life. Once I learned the truth of the incident, I just couldn't seem to put Trapped or Homer's book down. I don't know how many listening would roll their eyes and scoff, but I felt guilty guilty for assigning negative assumptions to the very real context of the tragedy, all derived from four or five paragraphs in a single source. At each disproved point, I found that I now had to know the truth. Though it is a great and terrible story, it shows the capacity for people to care beyond themselves. Yes, there were plenty of people in this tale who pursued money and fame or who only cared about the drama of it all, and yet there were others who fought their way to come to the aid of a single man. A huge amount of resources were donated to their cause. Miller wrestled his way to Floyd's side to read hundreds of telegrams for him, hundreds of the country's voices, telling him that they cared. And that is a story worth telling. I visited the Mammoth Cave Baptist Cemetery. I stood in front of Floyd's grave, now fully aware of the crazy journey he'd been through, both in life and in death. The sun shone down in that place of death, but the green, beautiful woods felt like peace. Walking between the clean, tidy graves, looking around at the wildflowers, I think I understood, at least a little, why Floyd loved that land so much. At this point, I'm tired of hearing myself talk. I've mentioned a few of my thoughts as we've gone along, but I'll say a few more before we wrap things up. National parks are always a hotbed for unexplained events, tumultuous history, and odd sightings. After all, these are massive patches of land where nature and history have been preserved. With millions of visitors to national parks each year, you're going to get a hell of a lot of sightings. Many skeptics say that the dark plays tricks on you. But in Mammoth Cave, it's a different kind of darkness. There is no waiting until your eyes adjust. It's a true darkness that can bend the reality of the human mind. Not everything can be explained by this, though. There are quite a few accounts from reputable people who have seen guides in detailed period clothes who disappeared after a tour. The ranger pushed in the dark when no one was around the ranger who was spotted twice. I don't think those are issues sourced in the dark. 
As well, many of these stories go back centuries, so this isn't exactly a recent development. The area has an extensive history of pain and death, which, once again, could be argued to lay the groundwork for activity. Floyd's hauntings fascinate me the most, as while there are some stories that assign anger to him in an understandable, yet formulaic way, there are mostly stories of a man who simply loved the land, and even an occasion or two where he reportedly saved an explorer from injury or death. This familiar beat echoes back to the early cave guides. Though undergoing slavery and its horrible effects, many seem to have chosen to stay around the cave. This doesn't seem to be a posthumous idea either, as several guides themselves said that they loved the cave and didn't wish to leave, even in death. While I don't wish to assign pleasant emotions to deceased people who cannot speak for themselves and their painful experiences, I suppose I have a soft spot for the idea that maybe if there are people who remain here, maybe they're not all trapped in agony and sadness. Perhaps their existence isn't doomed to misery forever. Maybe they stay for love, and to choose to reside somewhere where they felt like they belonged. Thank you for listening through this extensive location. Next week, we journey to the last location in Season 1 of Back Away Slowly. This will be the most well-known and frequently investigated locations of the season. Since this place is so frequently covered, I've done some extensive digging, and I think you'll find some interesting and new information. Have your holy water on standby, because we're taking a hopefully temporary trip to the portal to hell. It's time to tackle Bobby Mackey's music world.